we exist to come alongside people who are hurting, who are broken, who are messed up, to come alongside them and give them love and to give them grace and to give them encouragement until they can rise above it and walk on that path on their own. We are Pathway Church, located in Burleson, Texas. We worship together, we serve together, and we grow together. Good morning, everybody. It is great to be here with you guys and online and people at the bridge. Uh, as the video uh, mentioned, we are beginning a new, a new journey today. Where that's, that's kind of what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at life through the lens of the storms in our past and how these storms can be <clears throat> the, our greatest teacher. But before we do that, I want to address the, the elephant in the room. Why do I have this massive thing to my right? Um, well... Before I, I, I reveal what it is, just so you know, it, it's no longer among the living, so don't be frightened. But I'm curious, how many of you have ever been up close and personal with a bear? Anybody care to? Anybody want to go on a bear hunt? Anybody? A couple of people. I, I feel you, Stefan. Yeah, uh, well, how about this? How many of you care to go uh, toe-to-toe with a bear with nothing but a knife. Anybody? No? no? I didn't think so. Well, that's, that's where our journey begins this, this season. We're going to be going back in time to the early 1840s. And this is the story of Frederick Gerstocker. So Gerstocker, he's a, a German hunter who's bent on expedition. He's a thrill seeker. And he comes to the States on what's known as a long hunt. So that means he's going to be here for a number of years hunting. And he's out in uh, southwest Arkansas in the Ozarks. He's hunting uh, these bear. And the last bear hunt that he goes on, and when you read his story, you understand why it's the last bear hunt he he goes on. He uh, encounters something, and and, and things change. Everything goes wrong. And in this moment, for Gerstalker, he goes from hunting a bear to being hunted by the bear. And in this critical moment, this is what Gerstalker does. He takes his rifle, and he drops it. He picks up a knife, just a meager little knife, and decides to go toe-to-toe with this bear. Why would he do that? Why on earth? What would compel a person in that moment to drop their rifle and grab a knife and go battle a bear? Why would they do that? I'll let, you, I'll let you consider that. I'll let you come up with your own thoughts why he would do that. We'll come back to it. But as I'm listening to Gerstocker's story, right away it reminded me of exactly what David's story, King David in our Bible, because you see, for David, David went on a number of bear hunts in his story. He went on a bear hunt as, as a shepherd, as a warrior, as a king. David went on bear hunts. It's just what he did. But for David, these were, these were storms in his life that he didn't want. He didn't ask for, but the storm found him anyway. This is our world. Like it or not, no matter what we do, despite our best efforts, our best planning, our best diets, exercise, it doesn't matter. Eventually, the storm comes to us. The bear comes right into our insulated world on the attack. And we have to confront the fact that sometimes we don't go on bear hunts. Sometimes the bear comes hunting for us. Now, these moments, these storms in our lives, they can either break you or they can shape you. And the choice is really up to you. But it's, it's these moments where the question is no longer, how do I get around 
this bear coming at me? How do I avoid this bear? The question becomes, how am I getting through this bear? How am I going to emerge on the other side? And when I get there, what am I going to look like? What is that storm in my life? What's it, what's it going to teach me about myself, about God, about my world? As you think back over the last year and a half, what did that storm teach you? Hopefully, the one thing it taught all of us is that fact that storms are inevitable. No matter what we do, we can't avoid it forever. Eventually, the storm comes to us. So the question that I want us to wrestle with for the next five weeks is this. How do you grow through the storm? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that there's, there's not a moment in time you haven't already been. That everywhere we place our foot, Father God, we know that you have been before us and that you are with us and that you will follow behind us. No matter what storm we find ourselves in, Father, we know that you are with us and that you are preparing us, getting us ready for the next thing. And so, Father, that's, that's the presence, that's what we need in this moment, is your spirit of guidance. So, Father, lead us this morning. In your son's name, amen. So, in your Bibles, I want you to open up to Psalm 86. For the next five weeks, the book of Psalms, this is going to be our, our guidebook, our map through the storms. Because... You see, with, with Psalms, what, what you get, you get a, a, a unique perspective on King David. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> the same thing happened in the last service. As soon as I said amen, it's like God was calling me. Uh, <laughs> uh, but with Psalms, and, and especially Psalm 86, but there's some other Psalms, what's unique about it is that we're getting a prayer from David at his, some of his most desperate points in life. And I would argue you, you can learn a lot about a person by the way that they pray when they are at their most desperate. That's what we get with some of these psalms. And that's what we get with Psalm 86. But before we dive in, I, I, I've got a couple of realities that I, I want to offer to you, I, I invite you to consider. And the first one is this. Comfort is temporary. Growth is eternal. And I want you to consider this because <clears throat> the overall thrust of, of technology, of our gadgets, of our devices, is headed in the direction of trying to make life more comfortable. Why? Because we think that's what we desire. Now, I'm going to date myself a little bit. Um, <laughs> I think my hairline's already dating myself. That's okay. <laughs> but how many of you can remember having a TV without a remote? Anybody remember that? My very first TV, there was no remote. You had to get up, and I remember the two dials. You had the UHF and the VHF dial, and the dial underneath it, you had to find the right channels. And I had two brothers and a sister, and one of us would have to volunteer to be the one to hold the rabbit ears in just the right way so that you could see the screen. But then somebody, somebody came along and said, you know what? It's not right. It's not right that you have to get up off the chair and change the channel. You ought to be able to do it from your chair. So they invent the remote control. And people were happy for a little bit. And then somebody said, you know what? It's not right that you have to leave your house and go to a movie theater to watch a movie. You ought to be able to do that at your home. 
And so they invent the VHS tape and then the DVD, and people were happy for a little while. And then somebody says, you know what? It's not right that you got to get up out of your chair to put the DVD in the player. You ought to be able to do it right from your couch. And so they invented streaming services, and people were happy for a little while. And then somebody said, you know, if you can do all of that, it's not right that you ever have to get out of your house. You ought to be able to just stay right there and do everything from the comfort of your couch. And people were happy for a little while. But you see, what I would suggest to you is this. Comfort is a myth. It's not really what we desire. We need points in our life when we rest, but it's not sustainable. And when we go seasons without challenge, without growth, what do we do? We get bored. And it's in those seasons of life where we actually start to create our own storms through addiction. And the second reality I want you to consider, this, this hints back at something I said a couple of weeks ago, but it, I think it bears repeating here, and that's this. God doesn't cause the storm, but God does use the storm. This past year and a half, when the world turned upside down, I noticed for a lot of people, it created a bit of a religious crisis for them. A lot of people turning to God in, in, in anger and frustration saying, why? Why, God? Why is this happening? And so if that's you, when the storm hits, when the bear's on the hunt for you, and your instinct is to turn to God in anger and say, why? Over the next five weeks, what I want you to do, I want you to consider the possibility of moving quickly through the why question so that you can get to the where question. The question of, I don't want this storm, but it's here. So God, where are you in this storm? I know you're here, and I know you're doing something within me in the midst of this storm. Where are you? Show me where you are. And not only that, God, where is the opportunity? So let's take a look here at Psalm 86. I want to pick up the very beginning. David prays. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. This is the prayer of a desperate man. And you can hear it. And it listen to the, some of the, the things that he says. Hear me, Lord. I'm poor and needy. Save your servant. Have mercy on me. But that's not all David is. As he's in this point of desperation, we also hear another voice. And we hear it through things like this. I am faithful to you. I put my trust in you. You are my God. You are the source of my joy. You see, in the midst of David's desperation, he's also humble. In your notes, the first lesson you learn in the storm is humility. So what's the, what's the source for David's humility? Where, where did it begin for him? You see, for David, his story began as a shepherd. Now, when, when we hear that term shepherd, especially in, in circles like this, it, it, it's kind of a term of endearment for us. It, it gets a bit romanticized, but what I'll tell you, for David... Shepherd, there was, there was nothing endearing about the life of a shepherd. It was low-level, dirty, ugly work. Nobody wanted to do it. But you see, David, he's the youngest in his family. He draws the short straw. 
even to the point that that's how his family saw him. When Samuel the prophet is coming to David's home, Samuel is looking for the next king of Israel. And, and the family knows this. His dad, Jesse, Jesse knows, okay, Samuel's coming, and he's told me one of my sons is going to be the next king of Israel. In that moment, his father, Jesse, he doesn't even bother to bring David in from the fields. He leaves him out there with the sheep. And so Samuel, Samuel's looking at, at uh, Jesse's sons, and he asks Jesse, he's like, I'm not getting a message from God that any of, the, any of these are, is going to be the king. Do you, do you have any other kids? And, and Jesse's response is, well, I mean, yeah, there's David, but he's the shepherd. He, he can't be what you're looking for. You see, David, his story begins in humility. And what David doesn't know is during this season, God was using it to prepare him for what's coming. But even though David doesn't know, David is faithful. You see, this is what humility in the storm looks like. When you find yourself in that place that you don't want to be, you find yourself in that, in that job or that season, you feel like, man, I deserve better than this. Instead of responding with, God, why am I here? Or responding with, well, I don't want to be here, so I'm going to do just good enough just to get by and bide my time until I can get out of this place. Humility in the storm is not doing that. Humility in the storm in that place is saying, okay, God, why am I here? What is it you're preparing me for? Where's the opportunity in this? And as an act of humility, you serve right where you are to the best of your ability, trusting that God isn't going to waste a season, that God's not going to waste a storm in your life, that God is preparing you for what's coming. In your notes, letter A, humility begins with recognizing the authority of God in all circumstances. So I want you to think, think back to your most recent storm in your life. How did you respond? What was your instinct when it came on? Did you, did you immediately turn to God in trust or did you turn to God in anger and frustration? I mean, think back on the, on the most recent storm. How, how did you handle that? How did you respond? I was visiting with a, uh, a young man a while back in my office, and he's, he's in a storm. He's in a place he doesn't want to be. And it's not his fault. It, it was a, no wrongdoing on his part, but he's there anyway, and he doesn't want to be there. And he's paralyzed by it. He doesn't know what to do. And he's visiting with me, and he's... He lets me know that, that part of the storm, he's waiting, uh, awaiting a hearing that's a few weeks away, and that hearing would determine his fate. And he was just paralyzed by it. And so I pull out my calendar, and I point to the date of the hearing. I said, okay, the date is, is here on the calendar, but you're all the way up here. I said, look at, look at all of the weeks, all of the days, all of the hours that separate you from this future date. Like, right or wrong, good or bad, no matter what happens on the date of the hearing, you've got these next few weeks. You want to use them or do you want to lose them? The choice is yours. How easy of a trap is that for us to fall into? We, we get so caught up in this storm and worrying about a future date. Think, if you could, at the end of your life, add up all of those chunks of time where you start worrying about something until the moment that it, it reaches some sort of conclusion, and most of the time, the thing that we're worried about never happens, but if you added up all of those chunks of time through the course of your life, how much time do you suppose you've lost out of worry? What does Jesus tell us on the Sermon on the Mount? He said, look, 
There's absolutely nothing your worry is going to do about that future date. All it's going to do is rob you of today. That's it. You see, humility in the storm in these moments is not, is not saying, woe is me, woe is me. It's in those moments that you don't want to be. Instead, you, you turn to God and you say, God, great are you, Lord. That's what humility in the storm looks like when, when your life is spinning out of control. You're in the place that you don't want to be. Even then, you recognize that God has authority in all circumstances. This is who David is. And that's how he prays. In the midst of his storm, in the midst of the place where he doesn't want to be, this is how he prays. Verse 8. He says, Among the gods there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. You see, David, he's, he's in a small storm. He's in a place he doesn't want to be. But he does it anyway. And guess what? The conversation with God never stops for David. He takes a look at where he is. He's out in the field, surrounded by sheep, all by himself. And he makes the most of it. I want you to consider so many of the Psalms that we read, they come from David's prayers. Where do you suppose David developed his prayer life? Where do you suppose David learned how to pray like this? Out in the field. Surrounded by sheep, doing the one job nobody else wanted to do. And what does David do? He takes advantage of his disadvantage. What might that look like for you? Think about that one area in your life that you point at and you say, this is my disadvantage. This is my handicap. What might it look like for you to take a look at that and reframe it? Not to put on the rose-colored glasses and pretend like it's a good thing, but to consider, okay, I'm here, I don't want to be here, it's a handicap, it's, it's a disadvantage, but even still, I'm recognizing the authority of God in this circumstance. Where is the opportunity? What advantage do I have because of this disadvantage? You see, David, this is what he does, and because of that, he goes into this storm as a shepherd, but he emerges as somebody who knows how to pray, somebody who knows how to listen to the voice of God. You see, this is, this is something that, that only the storm can teach you. When, when everything in life lets you down, and, and they will at one point in time or another, even the best of them, even the best of spouses and parents and kids and friends and jobs, even the best of them at some point will let you down. And in that moment, that's what the storm teaches you, that the only true thing that you can really rely on is God. That's it. This is who David is. And in the midst of his desperation, David prays, Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. But this isn't the only thing that David learns in this season of life, in this, in this storm. So he's a shepherd. This means he has to stay with the sheep all, all the time. Do you know why? Because the sheep could not survive the wild on their own. Because there was always a bear on the hunt for the sheep. And so David's job wasn't just to make sure the sheep didn't get lost. David's job was to routinely put himself in harm's way, to put himself in between the bear and the sheep. <clears throat> See, this isn't just a dead-end job for David. It's, it's a dead-end job that for David could quite literally lead to a dead end for him. And he's not a hunter. 
He's not a warrior. He's a shepherd. But that's not all he is. You see, when you, when you find yourself in that place, in, in the job that, that nobody wants, in that, in that season of life that, that, that you don't want, that you wish you could avoid, when you find yourself in that place, there's, there's two voices that you can listen to. And what the voice of the world will tell you is they will continue to point out the negativity. They'll continue to point out the disadvantage. They'll point out how hopeless how meaningless your place in life is. And they'll point out that that's all you're ever going to be. 20 years from now, you're going to be stuck in that same place. There ain't no change. Or you can listen to the voice of God. That at that same moment, at that same time, God's saying, no. Yeah, this, this is not a great time in your life. It's not, not pleasant. But I'm shaping you through it. If you would listen to me, I'm using this storm to prepare you for what's coming. Where you are right now is not where you're going to be. I'm taking you somewhere. Which voice do you listen to in that moment? You see, humility in the storm teaches you that today's comfort is a poor exchange for tomorrow's glory. David learns this. David knows this because when the storm hit, the most important voice for him was the voice of God, conversing with God day after day after day. In your notes, letter B, humility in the storm involves my daily renewal of obedience. <clears throat> have, you ever, have you ever found yourself <clears throat> in a season where you, you became so angry or so disillusioned, whatever the case is, that you actually stopped talking to God altogether? You stopped praying, you stopped reading, stopped listening? Ever been there? I have. It, it, it came to a head for me whenever I was a senior in college, but it was, it was a slow burn. The storm for me actually began years earlier. You see, I, actually, I grew up here in Burleson, and I was, I was nothing but, I was just, I was a country boy who liked to pick a country guitar. That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to pick guitar. And I knew I was going to college, and I, I say, well, I, I'll see if I can pick guitar in college. That sounds like fun. And I got two options. I can either study classical guitar or jazz guitar. And I thought, hey, classical guitar, why not? That'll be fun. As soon as I make that decision, I had so many people tell me, Chris, you have lost your mind. You're in over your head. You're nothing but a country guitar picker. There's no way you're going to make it in a formal music school. And then I, go, I actually go to college, and I show up. Gosh, I remember that first day. I was so out of place. I, I pull into the parking lot. Now, I want you to picture this. I'm driving a 68 Chevy pickup truck, and, and it wasn't a cool-looking one. It was beat up. It was ragged. The truck didn't even have the ability to be locked. But I didn't care because I would tell people, look, if you can figure out how to start my truck, you can steal it. <laughs> You've earned it. I have the time. I can't get it to go. But I pull into the parking lot, and what do I see? I'm surrounded by luxury import cars. And then I go to class, and I'm wearing my boots and my jeans and my cowboy hat. And I walk into class, and it was that moment uh, you see in a movie where the wrong guy walks into the bar, and the music stops, and everybody just whoop. That was me. I walk in, and everybody's like, what's this guy's deal? What's he doing here? Who's he kidding? So what do I do? I'm like, ah, I'll show you. I heard all the naysayers. I'm like, just you wait. Just watch. Watch what I can do. And for four and a half years, I go about the business of proving them wrong. And guess what? I did it. 
Four and a half years later, I graduated from college. I proved them all wrong. I did the one thing they said I couldn't do. You know what else I did? I created the most bitter version of me that ever existed because I was so trapped in selfish pride. I allowed the voice of the world completely to completely dictate how I responded. You see, when the, when the voice of the world says something to you, we're taught that you can either conform to it or you can rebel. What I will tell you is both are wrong. You see, that whole season, what I didn't consider was the possibility that the plan that God had for me had absolutely nothing to do with what they were saying I could or couldn't do. That the plan that God had for me was somewhere, somewhere else altogether. You see, it takes, it takes a lot of humility, a lot of humility. When the world comes up to you and says, you can't do that, it takes a lot of humility to say, you know, geez, maybe you're right. Maybe I can't. Or, hey, you know, maybe I can. Maybe I can. I, I don't know. Tell you what, either way, I, I don't care. I don't care because that's not the plan that God has for me. The plan that God has for me is over here. And so I'm okay with you thinking I'm, I can't do something because I really don't care. What I care about is the plan that God has for me. But you see, I learned something else on that day as well, and I learned it in here. Not just in the Bible, but, but this specific Bible. Uh, after a graduation ceremony, we went to lunch to celebrate, even though I was in no mood to celebrate because I was a pretty miserable human at that point. And my brother gives me this Bible as a gift. And I open it up, and he had written there at the very beginning, Jeremiah 29, 11. He said, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And I learned something very powerful. I learned that even when I stopped seeking God, God didn't stop seeking me. Somebody needs to hear that. Somebody here, I don't know who you are, where you are, but you, in your mind, you've traveled so in your mind, so many miles away from God, you're not as far from God as what you think. You see, I woke up that morning, no lie, I woke up that morning, the day of my graduation from college, looking at myself in the mirror saying, I don't like you. But by the time I went to bed that night, when I laid my head on the pillow, you know what I was saying? I was saying, okay, God, let's get to work. When these storms hit you, when the world starts telling you that you can or you can't do that, those are the moments when that conversation with God becomes so critical, where you say, God, the world is saying this about me. They're saying I can't do this, but you know what, God? I don't care. I don't care what the world says I can or can't do. What I care is about what you say. Who do you say I am? You see, the world told David he was nothing but a lowly shepherd, and that's all he would ever be. But David doesn't care what the world is saying about him. He cares about what God says. And God tells him, yeah, you're a shepherd. Take pride in your calling. Like you're going into the storm as a shepherd, but you are emerging as a good shepherd. Because when the bear is on the hunt, you put yourself in harm's way to protect the sheep. David, you're coming out of this storm a courageous and mighty protector. David, you're coming out of the storm anointed. You go through this book, you're going to read story after story after story where the anointing of God comes on the other side of the storm. 
And because David is humble, because he continues to daily listen to the voice of God, he grows through this storm. You see, insecurity plus survival leads to being defeated and being humbled. But humility plus growth, that leads to godly confidence. A confidence that only the storm can develop. A confidence that God was shaping David in for a purpose that David didn't even know was coming. Yet even though he doesn't know, in the midst of his storm, listen to how he prays. Verse 11, he says, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. This is the prayer of a humble man who's truly confident. Confident in who God says he is. Confident and obedient in who God is calling him to be. Right in the middle of the storm. You see, arrogance, arrogance will always point to the self. Confidence will always point to God. Arrogance will sacrifice others. Confidence sacrifices themselves, willingly sacrificing today's comfort for tomorrow's glory. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. When you find yourself in this kind of a storm, do you, do you have that kind of strength, that kind of willpower to consider the future glory of God in the presence of pain and suffering? You see, at the, at the core of my belief is this, is that God is doing something. God is leading us. God is taking us somewhere. And wherever God is taking us, that the, the current storm that I find myself in, it will pale in comparison to where God is taking us, the future glory of God. David has this belief, and it's a good thing he did. Because even though he doesn't know it, David's about to go on another bear hunt. What I want you to understand, what I want you to think about, I want you to process and reflect. Think about it. When you're in that place, what, what is your instinct? Do you go into survival mode? Do you close off the world? Do you close off God? Or is your instinct to actually open up that line of communication with God? If you're not sure how you respond when the storm hits, here's a tip. Don't wait. Don't wait till that next storm. Because, spoiler alert, another storm is coming. It's going to happen. Don't wait till then to figure out how you're going to respond. You start today. I hear people tell me all the time, like, I, I know you, you say we need to pray every day, but I, I don't know how to pray. That's okay. You know why? David knew how to pray. Plagiarize him. He's not going to mind. You open up your Bible, you go to Psalm 86, and this is what you do. If, if you're someone who doesn't know how to pray, tomorrow morning you wake up and you read verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 86. But listen, listen to that first verse. He says, hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I'm poor and needy. Rick mentioned a while back one of the best prayers is to simply turn to God, arms wide open, and say, help. That's what he's doing. He's saying, and so as an act of humility, you start tomorrow off. You read those first two verses, and you work to commit it to memory so that whenever you leave that morning time, those verses are still reverberating in your mind and your spirit throughout the course of the day, just as a reminder that that conversation hasn't stopped, as a reminder that even though you're not in your morning spot, you're milling about throughout the day, God is shaping you even then. Don't wait till the next storm. 
You see, David, he daily renews his obedience to God, his calling for his life. He reminds himself of the authority of God. I want to read verse 8 again. He says, among the gods there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with you. And while he's praying this prayer, God is preparing him for his next bear hunt. And as you sit right now in the comfort of your home or in the chair or in the pew, God is preparing you for your next bear hunt. In your notes, letter C, humility in the storm means making God's desires my desires. This is, this is the final move of humility, to rid myself of my own selfish desire, my own desire to make myself known, to make my name great, to build my brand or to, to build a company brand. It's, it's not about me. It's about making God's name great. You see, this is who David is. This is what he cares about. And so in the midst of his storm, in his pit of despair, he prays. Verse 11, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Not that people will know my name. Not that people will fear my name or praise my name. That I may fear your name. Give me an undivided heart, God, so that I am devoted to you and to you alone. And so once again... David finds himself in another bear hunt. At this point in David's story, the Israelite army is fighting the Philistine army. And David's brothers are in the army. And so Jesse, the father, sends David to the battlefield to bring his brothers some food. Once again, David's being the humble servant. He's the errand boy. But when he gets to the battlefield, what does he see? He looks up, and he sees a big, giant bear. But this time, the bear has a name. His name is Goliath. He's a nine-foot-tall bear of a man whose armor alone weighs 125 pounds. I want that to sink in. His armor probably weighed almost as much as David did entirely. And David looks up, and he sees this bear barking, growling. And then David looks to his right and to his left. What does he see? He sees a bunch of sheep that are scared. But this time, those sheep is the Israelite army. And I think it was in that moment when David sees the bear named Goliath and he sees the sheep, the Israelite army, I think it was in that moment for him that he finally realized, ah, I get it. That's why all those years, that for this moment right here, you see, for days, Goliath was coming out to the, the front lines, just shouting at the Israelite army, saying, hey, come and fight me by myself. I don't, I don't need my buddies to help me. I'll take you on by myself. Give me your strongest man and see what he can do to me. I dare you. Goliath is as arrogant as the day is long, and, and the Israelite army wanted nothing to do with him. This is the scene when David arrives. But David responds differently. As soon as he gets up there and he sees the bear and he listens to the bear, this is how David responds. David says, who is this guy? Who is arrogant and ignorant enough to call down the power of the living God? And why is everybody standing here letting him do it? David said, look, there's there's only one way you deal with a bear like this. And when the bear is on the hunt... And this time, the bear has got David in his crosshairs. This is how David prays. 
Verse 14. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And so David, who's not a fighter, he's not a warrior, anything like that, he goes up to meet Goliath. And this is the quintessential battle between earthly arrogance and godly confidence. And in the middle of Goliath barking and growling, David responds by speaking some truth to Goliath. You want to know how to respond when the bear's on the hunt for you? You start speaking some godly truth to it. This is what David does. David says, you come at me with the sword and the spear and the javelin. You come at me with the gods of the earth. You come at me with the gods of fame and fortune, the gods of earthly strength and power. You come at me with all of this. But guess what, Goliath? I'm coming at you in the name of the power of the almighty living God, the one true God. You don't know this, Goliath, that your gods are dead. My God is alive. You call me a worthless shepherd, but guess what? My God calls me a mighty shepherd, a courageous protector, the protector of his flock, the same flock that you're threatening right now. And just as David had done so many times before, reaches down, and he grabs a stone. And one swift move, this mighty bear comes down. All with a meager stone. That's it. So back to my question at the beginning. What would compel a person to go at a bear with nothing but a meager knife? Remember our, our hunting buddy, Gerstocker? Why would he do that? Why would he do that? The same reason a shepherd from Bethlehem would go at a bear named Goliath with nothing more than a little stone. Because you see, for both of them, for the humble servant, when the bear is on the hunt, they don't go into survival mode. They go into protection mode. They don't ask questions like, how do I save myself from this? They go to questions like, how many people can I save? How many people can I get on the other side of this bear? You see, for Gerstocker, that moment where everything went wrong, what happened was his dog got caught up in the fray, and the bear was attacking his dog. And Gerstalker, right away, he knows, I don't have time to reload my gun. I don't. If I do, by the time I finish, my dog's going to be dead. The only way my dog is going to survive that bear is if I drop my gun, I grab a knife, and I put myself in harm's way between the bear and my dog. And when Goliath was on the tack, David knows the only way the Israelite army is getting on the other side of this bear is if I step in and I put myself in harm's way between the bear and the sheep. Because that's what a humble servant does. Where did David learn this? Out in the field, surrounded by sheep, doing the one job that nobody else wanted to do. He learned it with this. Because you see, this is just a rock. That's all it is. For the world, this represents the tool of a shepherd, a worthless tool, a pointless job, a dead-end job, a nowhere job, a forgettable job. The world looks at the rock and looks at David and looks at the bear and tells David, hey, not enough. 
is not enough. But you see, David learned something that so many of us still struggle with, and that's this. David looks at his greatest strength and his biggest weakness, and David understands something. He understands there's really not much difference between my greatest strength and my biggest weakness when compared to the power of God. And so as an act of humility, David takes his weakness and he submits it to God. He said, God, this is where I am weak. This is where the world tells me I'm not enough. I submit it to you, to your authority, trusting that you're going to use my weakness to bring down a bear. And in case you didn't know, that wasn't the only time God used somebody's weakness. God used the weakness of Moses in his speech impediment to inspire a nation and liberate an entire nation out of slavery. God used the weakness of Paul in his imprisonment to write letters that for generations to come would help people experience spiritual freedom. The cross. God used the weakness of submission on the cross to create a power the world had never known. What do you suppose God could do with your weakness? Every time I stand here, I'm reminded of my weakness. Every time I get up here, I remember, Chris, not enough. You're not enough. And so that's my prayer when I come up here. I turn to God and I say, God, I am not enough unless you show up. But when you show up, you turn my weakness into somebody else's victory. Let's go bring down some bears. So I want to invite you to do this right now. I want you to be still and I want you to close your eyes and I want you to connect with what is that area in your life? What is your rock? What is that not enough for you? That you look at and you're reminded and the world reminds you that it's not enough. And not only is it not enough, that's, that's all you're ever going to be. What is that area? And I would invite you to consider today the possibility of taking your weakness and joining with Paul in that prayer where he says, Father, your grace is sufficient for me. Your power made perfect in my weakness. I will submit my weakness to you. I will boast about my weakness because where I am weak, Father, the world will see you are strong. I would invite you this morning to consider your weakness and to not respond in self-pity or to be paralyzed by it or to try to cover it up with arrogance, but to look at it for what it is as a weakness and you submit to God and you say, God, as an act of humility, I give you my weakness and I'm trusting that you're going to turn it into a victory. Father God, we thank you that you work through our brokenness for your good. We thank you that there's nothing that you can't accomplish, no matter how meager our skill set, there's nothing that you can't do. Father God, we thank you that when we are not enough, you show up, you stand in the gap. And so, Father, we join David, and we pray with him. And we say, hear us, Lord, and answer us. We are poor and needy. Father God, guard our lives because we are faithful to you. 
save your servants. We put our trust in you. Father, you are our God. Have mercy on us. We call to you all day long. Father, bring joy to your servants. We put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, have a great weekend. Remember, whenever you walk out, don't, don't take off too quickly. Go out to the crossing, sign the space. Have a great weekend. Thank you for joining us. If you would like more information on Pathway or to get connected to a ministry, visit our website at pathway.church. We look forward to growing with you as we worship together. God loves you. God is with you.